Hi, everybody, and welcome back to the In Squash podcast, episode 261 today with Squash Skills Jethro Bins. And what an episode this one is. Uh, Jethro and the Squash Skills production team put together something that has been long overdue, a Jonathan Power documentary. It's a three-part series, part one of which dropped uh, about a week ago, I believe. And I hope many of you have seen it. If you haven't, you definitely should. Uh, and also there's the promo that are out, promos that are out there which are fascinating in, in and of themselves. Uh, Jethro and I take a very deep JP dive. And uh, for those of you who've been uh, listening to my podcast for a while, you know that I'm a big JP honk. I think a few of you, uh, I, think, I don't think it's uh, the case anymore, but uh, I think for about 100 and, or 200 episodes, I brought up JP in just about every uh, episode somehow, some way. Uh, so this was one of those uh, kid in the candy store episodes where I couldn't uh, really help myself sometimes. So apologies in advance. But uh, indeed, Jethro showed up big, and uh, huge props to him and the Squash Skills uh, Squash Skills team uh, for putting these documentaries or uh, this series together. And huge props to JP because uh, man, what an, this is Oscar worthy. Uh, this performance. Uh, uh, the stuff where he, uh, obviously the footage uh, from back in the day and recent footage as well. But, uh, you know, the sit-downs with JP and talking uh, talking us through uh, his career, the early days, uh, the rivalry, rivalry with uh, JP, uh, and also uh, just his career on tour, the ups and the downs he had personally and professionally. It's all fascinating stuff. And I know uh, I just can't wait for the, the next two uh, uh, episodes to come out I guess uh, episodes because it's sort of Netflix worthy I would say uh, really good stuff the first one and two and three are supposedly uh, even better so again Jethro and I take a deep dive here on episode 261 the JP documentary from Squash Skills I know you're going to really really enjoy uh, the first one and uh, you're going to really enjoy this uh, this podcast uh, Jethro and I talking about the documentary what went into it we also uh, have a great discussion uh, couldn't help myself at the end uh, but Jethro has some really uh, really good and uh, interesting insights insight on the Assal uh, situation. So there's that at the end of the pod as well. But before we get into it, let's talk Open Squash, the New York-based nonprofit dedicated to bringing thousands of new people into the sport by making it more accessible and more affordable for everyone. They've brought on board several like-minded PSA pros like world number one, Ali Farag, who was seen at Optasia this week. He had uh, a decent showing in the event, but uh, just lost out there to Mezen Hisham in a fantastic five-game match. Victor Kruen, as well as Gina Kenny and many other, Gina Kennedy and many others. The open squash community is an exciting in an exciting growth stage at the moment with their uh, Phi Dye Center coming along, uh, coming online in about five months and their Brooklyn Center a year after that. That's going to be five courts to 23 and from 500 members to over 2,000. Growing the the sport and making it affordable to all is their mission, so it's rewarding to see this progress. So congratulations to Open Squash on that progress. Now Open Squash would like to ask for your help with building out their expanded team. They're hiring a director of operations and finance for their multiple centers. 
They'd love your help in identifying qualified candidates. It's a great role for the right person. Obviously, uh, you want to be stateside for this one, but uh, either way, uh, you might want to consider it, even if you're not. Uh, so here's what you need. Solid operations experience with a, with a high-energy, hands-on, data-obsessed entrepreneurial mentality. Happy to be a department of one and manage a broad range of tasks such as accounting, FP&A, human resources, and physical plant. Capable of acting in a fractional CFO, CFO role by supervising our outsourced bookkeeping while providing the FP&A overlay. Bonus credit for anyone fascinated with BPM and DPA. You know who you are. Looking to be part of a dynamic, fast-paced, high-growth nonprofit startup? Well, if you know of anyone, please contact Cleve Miller at Cleve, C-L-E-V-E, at opensquash.org. That's Cleve Miller at C-L-E-V-E, at opensquash.org. Now, this is episode 261, a fantastic chat about the JP documentary series and also a bit about the Assault uh, situation with squash skills legend Jethro Binns. Jethro, hey, how are you? Very well, thanks. Good, man, um, good. All, all good on your end, yeah? Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Busy, uh, lots going on, but that's all good. You know, I'd rather it that way than, than the other, so. Yeah, yeah. yeah. you look, uh, again, I think the, the last time we spoke, you were sitting in that same location. Uh, I don't move. It looks comfy move. there, it looks cozy. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure about that, but uh, yeah, I just changed my laptop at the moment, uh, but it's it's all good. That's great. That's great. Well, uh, the JP uh, documentary uh, part one is out, and uh, I watched part one. It was amazing. It was really, really good. Uh, I think I said on the la- uh, a couple of podcasts, I think it was the Charlie Lee podcast that just came out. I mentioned in the intro that uh, that it was Netflix worthy. It, it really, uh, really had a, a really great, great feel to it. JP was great. The production was great. The story is, um, as you know, I think most people who know JP, there there isn't uh, there aren't there isn't anyone like him out there. Uh, uh, we no one before and no one after. But uh, just in terms of this of the documentary, I I, I would argue it's long overdue. Um, and he was definitely one of a kind when he uh, when he came onto the scene. He really shook things up. Uh, so, just in terms of uh, the JP doc, great that you guys put it out. How long um, did it take to get things started, and where was it born from? Basically, it came together pretty quickly, actually. Um, so, Jim Bamba has recently taken the director of squash role at the Heights Casino. <laughs> um and i used to coach jim back in the day I used to live in bristol so we're, we're good good friends and uh we were talking about doing some you know uh rolling out the new the coaching platform actually the highest casino and then uh, uh, during that period they were looking for head coach and jp became the head coach and the kind of the conversation just kind of grew organically it was like well how about we try and you know raise the profile of what's going on at the club uh, raise the profile of what JP's doing. JP's back into coaching. Um, so we just kind of facilitated it that way. I mean, you know, I've known JP for, for years and we did some filming with him 
God, one of the, the earliest stints, one of those Legends events um, <laughs> with Pete Nick, with Beach, with John White, Dave Palmer. Um, and we, so we got JP on court there and did a playlist. And then I spoke to him a few years later and kind of said, oh, you know, we'd love to do something with you. And uh, he said, oh, I'm not doing anything to do with squash. I'm not doing anything about squash now. And he went, you know, went through his face. So I kind of put it, put that one to bed uh, a little bit. And then through COVID, we did a podcast with him and Diego, uh, which was nice. Um, but yeah, the, there was no real plan. As I said, it almost was like, shall we try and make this happen in October? And then we booked the flights three weeks later and you know it all happened quite organically as as these things tend to with the Pontefract doc that kind of you know we didn't go in with too much of a plan or BP it's they they happen quite organically and everybody's got a great story to tell it's just a case of putting the questions together and and teasing it out of them um so yeah it wasn't wasn't you know well planned over years (laughs) it's uh it came together pretty quickly and pretty organically uh, which is nice yeah, I mean, I just love that. That's basically how a play, uh, what it looked like as well. I mean, JP was, you know, sitting in the chair there and just uh, telling stories and talking, you know, reflecting back. And there's lots to reflect on. I mean, I was, I knew JP as well from, I mean, part one, you talk a bit about uh, his very early days when he was, uh, when he lived in Prince Edward Island, which is very close to where I'm from. And that's kind of where I, I met JP as a, he was a, much younger junior than I was back then, but, um, you know, he, he definitely has a really sort of a, a very soft uh, spot in his heart for, for that uh, period in his life. Just talk about that a little bit, you know, that, that part of the doc where, um, <clears throat> where he looks back at his time in PEI. Yeah. I mean, it was just, just great. I, Cause I didn't know, uh, know the full history of kind of, Heard almost heard legendary tidbits as a kind of kid <laughs> yeah. of, you know, JP went off and moved to the city on his own as a 14-year-old and went pro. And it was kind of almost mythical and legendary that this this kind of teenage kid had gone pro. So I guess I was quite keen to kind of probe whether it, you know, how pushy his father was and whether it was his, you know, dad's dream for JP to be be pro and so so it was all kind of new to me if that makes sense and you know that obviously wasn't wasn't the case you know you can just see in that early part of the film the 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 love within the family is really strong and real and it's genuine support and it's you know it's it's just lovely to see so that was kind of yeah I guess I guess fascinating for me to understand and get to get to hear it firsthand but you know to kind of reveal that uh, to the world but yeah I mean what a fascinating story as well just JP talking about you know that taste of freedom as a 14 year old and you know the the, <laughs> the squash kids all being quite unique and suddenly as soon as he could be off that was that was what he wanted to do and he knew the path he wanted to kind of carve for himself so yeah I mean I just found the whole thing fascinating because there is that huge amount of family support there but equally he was you know immensely independent wasn't he from such a such a young age um and just fascinating to hear him go off about him go off and be a teenager and do all those bits whilst being you know a mercurial talent um but then you know having to kind of rein it in and obviously you know fortuitously meeting meeting mike and getting his head down with graham at the right time where it all kind of came together around that well around that two that 200 bet 
Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's just, it's just fascinating. I just just found it so so interesting. Um, I felt very privileged to kind of be able to put it together. You know. Yeah, there was one. Um, I just did a, an episode with uh, Dean Brown, and I, I don't know if you know Dean Brown, but he uh, runs the Bow Valley Athletic Club in Calgary, and they just hosted the Canadian Open. And uh, Dean and Jonathan were very good friends growing up. And uh, I think, you know, I, again, Dean was um, a few years older. And in junior tournaments, he he would get the better of Jonathan for a few years. And then there was a moment where um, I think I forget, the Ontario Junior Open final and uh, Jonathan was getting very close to beating him. It was like two all or something. And then in the fifth game, uh, John Power Sr. starts coaching Dean. Right. <laughs> and and then, you know, he, he, he I don't know what he said, but he uh, then Dean went out and won the fifth. Wow, okay. <laughs> and so, and uh, Jonathan never lets Dean forget about that, nor his father, I would imagine. I think he's still <laughs> extremely angry with, with, with them both. But uh, <laughs> that just speaks to the... The real quirky, really sort of ingenious uh, uh, nature of John Senior as well, because he he had the plan to to get Jonathan to to become world. I think that was I'd spoken to him a, a long time ago about that, and that was the plan to get to get him to world number one. And well, there you are. It clearly worked, right? Coaching coaching the opponent clearly <laughs> did the trick. It set him up for a a career, and um, you know, dealing with. Uh, yeah, tricky situations, I guess. I can't imagine any more tricky situations than your father <laughs> coaching somebody else. Um, but yeah, there you go. So maybe set him up for adversity and he came through a number of finals later, knowing that uh yeah, maybe that was that was the that was the long-term plan. Long-term yeah. thing. <laughs> yeah. So but uh before, you know, as you probably know now, before he took the world by storm, he definitely uh, as a junior, he took Canada by storm. Like no one had ever seen anything. Uh, quite like it and uh, you know from a young age uh, in Canada too uh, as he as it turned out on the world circuit uh, uh, his presence was polarizing right people saw oh my goodness this guy's got so much talent he's going to be great and then the establishment were like you know we can't have this right and <laughs> I, just, I, I sort of remember I, w- I won't mention his name but uh, he was on the Canadian national team uh, it was a national team level player uh, and also Canadian junior national team. And as a junior, I, I remember the match. He walked off the court. He he didn't finish the match because Jonathan was sort of going at it with the referees and you know shouting and doing you know all the theatrics and stuff. And and it was a good. It was a close match. And I think probably just didn't want to finish. Didn't want to be finished off uh, by Jonathan. You know. But at the same time, there was that you know sort of polarizing nature. So. Did you get a taste of uh, of sort of what you know the the Canadian uh, feel was for Jonathan as he was growing uh, into who he was, who he became? Sorry, I didn't actually didn't dive into that. Um, I guess was a little bit more focused on his kind of rise in the global yeah, game. In all honesty, you've probably got um, got a greater sense of that at a kind of national level. Um, but you know, obviously, we we spoke to spoke to Jonathan about about his regrets and looking back, and mm-hmm. you know, as he said, you know, he had no no regrets and wouldn't have done anything differently. Um, you know, he talked about how he he don't think he doesn't think he ever overstepped a line or 
it was funny actually in the, if you listen to the the words carefully in what, how he talks about referees says he tried to like he doesn't think he overstepped the line often <laughs> so you could see his kind of the cogs returning and yeah. no that was um, a really that was a really good good part like uh i remember and and i agree with him like you see the the tone of the, the some of the guys now it's very it's it, it go it's over the line in my in my opinion the tone of some of the guys but but with jonathan it was more like he was just angry at the call not not in a threat you know he wasn't threatening them with the tone of his voice he was just like you can't like a john McEnroe outburst right well he had i mean the the thing that differentiates jonathan from most people is the fact he's funny right and he's got a sense of humor with it and you know it's it's a, a talent and an intelligence right of dealing with people and he he can bring the crowd with him, you know, and obviously he could be perceived as being divisive sometimes, but I think the majority of people, or if you know, a huge majority of the people will look back on JP as a character, as being good for the game and being entertaining. And, you know, he, he did it with that sense of humour. And I think that sense of humour is probably lacking a little bit if you look at what's going on at the moment at the top of the men's game. Um you know, it's yeah, yeah. There's plenty of bullshitness, but probably a lack of sense of humor there that Jonathan did possess. And you know, I, I mean that that moment with um, where they uh, he ends up cramping against Pete Nick, right, and falls <laughs> on the floor and asks for a let, and ref just says no, no, no. It's like, no, somebody somebody just shot me from the crowd with a pellet gun. Um, you know, it's just brilliant. And then Pete, the bit that the bit you miss out on the um on the trailer is where Pete responds with great shot and you just think, Oh god. That's... Yeah, I remember that. That that's a classic moment in, in squash so or a, a classic moment in their rivalry. Uh you know. Yeah. One of the many. But um but yeah, I mean and the way, you know, it, I think he laid it out exactly the way it, it, it's pretty accurate just in terms of, of the way he dealt with officials was uh, I never felt it to be, you know, he was never insulting them. He was just questioning mm-hmm. the calls. Uh, and I, I, I look at like a lot of the calls back then. I thought, Jesus, you know, what, what's he doing? He, I, I think he's wrong. But now I look back now and a lot of the time, like the calls that he argued, you know, like if he thought he hit a perfect length nowadays, like he, Players wouldn't get let. I don't think. I mean, it's fascinating. Yeah, no, it's fascinating going back through the old, that old archive footage. As you know, we have been for for the content and the promo of it. And I've been. I, we do the tips of the week and and you know things like that on social media. And we're trying to raise the profile of JP Doc. So have focused on finding all JP footage mm. and uh, just browsing through. We also do what decision would you give? Um, every week I get on school skills on social. And yeah. I tell you what, it was so much easier to find what decision would you give back in those day- days? Cause every second rally was a, was a lap and, you know, it was, it was really fascinating to watch because, you know, sometimes I feel like I'm flipping a coin at the moment. I don't know what's coming, whether it's an Ola or a stroke when, but you do know that back in the day, it would have been a lap. There were just so many average lets um, yeah. that could well have been strokes, but they were just easy lets, let, let, let. And, you know, as much as JP did argue with the refs, I think everybody was a little bit more content with just taking a let, right? Um, 
but I don't know from a spectator standpoint if it was better or ultimately better or not because you end up with a lot of kind of replayed points right and replayed rallies um and more easy lets and more more bumping in whereas now you know I know the number of decisions has come down per match um but equally sometimes you're you're questioning what's coming right so it's uh it's a tricky yeah. one it's definitely interesting comparing the two eras which you know definitely spent a lot of time watching old footage recently and god there were some lets yeah it was unbelievable <laughs> yeah definitely a lot lots of fishing for strokes too uh yeah 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 it was just easier wasn't it it was well, yeah, uh, i mean it's not their fault i mean uh, a lot of the strokes that were given were i mean you know egregious today but back then they were they were given a stroke so yeah but uh, yeah. another another thing on the in the documentary in, in part one there was so much of it it was all it was fantastic from start to finish um and i'm just going to pick my spots here but the the part where uh, jonathan talks about his world junior he got to the world junior final and he lost to uh jua Ra- raumalin i think his name is the, the finnish yep. guy uh, and he didn't really do i mean he had a relatively quiet uh, professional i think he got career he got to 50 in the world or something but uh, uh i'm not sure i i get the, the impression even even before this pod uh before this uh documentary that he sort of that's that's a bitter pill for him he 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 would have liked to have won that i mean it made me laugh because he talks about being an average junior and having an average junior career and lost in the world finals <laughs> as a 17 year old and then would have won it the following year if he had been the right age. Um, so yeah, it made me laugh when he said he he was average. Um, yeah, I don't know. I don't. I, I know he. You know, I think his year was the British Open. Was with it was Hadrian, wasn't it? Um, Hadrian Stiff was was his age group, I think. So yes. I can't remember if Hadrian actually beat him, but I don't, I'm not sure if he won the British, won the Drysdale. Don't think he did either. So maybe he missed out on those, on those big championships. But hey, I guess he made up for it later, right? Uh, oh, absolutely. Yeah. Well, I mean, where he came from too. I mean, the, he was so far and above uh, every other junior in North America, and and that's where he played predominantly. Uh, I mean, most of his squash. He did get into playing a lot of senior events, but he didn't really. You know, he wasn't really tested uh, and you in the documentary there's a lot of stuff on how he went to uh, uh to england and trained with um with jk and and that that was fantastic stuff uh, as well but um he also uh, you sort of get into a little bit about um about uh, sort of his uh, his life outside of squash and uh you know that 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 i was a bit I was a privy to a bit of that. Uh, I've told this story a few times on the podcast. The last time I saw Jonathan was at the uh, Quebec Open. It was circa 92. And we were, you know, we had a lot of mutual friends and he liked us because we were from the Maritimes, the, the eastern part of Nova, eastern part of Canada. So he, he hung around with us a, a bit and he got to the final. I think he might have been 17 at the time and he played. Uh, in the final, he played Jamie Crombie. Uh, you might know Jamie. I, I played Jamie actually in a PSA many years ago. Canadian yeah. Superman, we I call. Yeah, him. yeah, yeah. Uh, great, very good player. Uh, very fit, fast, uh, focused, uh, nice guy, uh, good guy. And uh, but anyways, uh, like an hour before the match, we were in the we were in the hotel room, ready, getting ready to <laughs> head over there. And uh, knock, knock, knock. JP comes in. 
like this is like less than an hour before and 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 uh, he partakes in the shenanigans goes over there and just uh, he almost beats Jamie he loses in five <laughs> but it, it was amazing I mean just like this attitude that he had like he you know didn't care you know it was uh but but then he'd go out and just play mesmerizing like squash that no one had really seen before uh but you yeah, okay. you alluded to that a lot and uh, a little bit I guess and this is going to come up later but you know the the nightclub scene and the, and the the rage uh scene and, and as I mean you're familiar with that scene a, a little <laughs> bit uh, Jethro as well but uh, talk a little bit about that and uh it's not something that he hides from I don't think no I think he just you know he he grew up fast didn't he and was exposed to city life and you know, an adult life and was hanging out with adults from a very young age and, you know, was, I guess, just <laughs> led astray at times, um, but knew how to have a good time. You know, he said he perfected his spin move, didn't he? Uh, spin move for the dance floor at, uh, yeah. at 17. Um, but yeah, I mean, he's just a, a bit of a wild child, isn't he? And um, yeah, yeah, he still is. He's still that way, isn't he? Like, like not, not, not going as far as what he, what, what he was into then, but he still comes off in in that that same. He hasn't really changed in that way. No, no, he's just he's just a fun guy, isn't he? He's just yeah. great to be around. He's just social, and you know, he's he's a character. He's one of a kind, and um, you know, worked hard and and played hard. I think fundamentally and enjoyed himself. Um, but yeah, it was. I mean, it was interesting as as he said that. You know, meeting Mike and Graham, I think you know him. Him and Graham were chalk and cheese, right? And uh, that that friendship was a good friendship for him by by all accounts. And kind I don't of, know if was that set up like Graham was reading Dostoevsky and uh, and and <laughs> JP had I don't know Max Playboy, I think Playboy. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they were very different. But um, no, I mean it's really interesting listening to him talk about relationship with mike and graham and uh you know the positive influence and how, how they were all kind of helping each other and guiding each other and learning together through that period um and i think you know it sounds like jp was lucky that that did happen because he yeah. could have lost to the lost the wilderness as a you know a potentially great talent right with unfulfilled potential but you know that that relation or those relationships there clearly uh got him into a good place and he bought all the success that that he went on to have. Yeah, I don't profess to know Mike really, really well, but I, you know, I've, I have met him personally and did, you know, spent a little bit of time on court with him a couple of times. But uh, he's the type of guy who's really, you know, he's very sociable. He likes to have a, a couple of beers and, uh, you know, likes to, you know, hang out. And but he's also, you know, I think he's pretty serious about what he's doing. That in that opening scene, you you see JP becoming world champion, coming off and giving Mike a hug, and the the microphone just picks up on uh, on Mike just going. It's he's got a really funny voice when he says it actually, but it just goes. And now we're gonna have some beer like that, and uh, <laughs> and it just. That's <laughs> but then JP just giggles and laughs, and you know it, it's just like ah yeah, you both knew how to have a good time together as well, and uh, yeah, you you just get that sense. So yeah. work hard, play hard, I think. Um, yeah. 
Yeah, one hundred percent. Yeah, def- definitely. Mike and Graham had a had a huge impact on on uh, getting him back or getting him onto the rails, so to speak. But uh, and one one thing you also uh, in in the in part one of the doc you uh, you talk uh, or you you look at the the TOC his win at the TOC. I think it was ninety six, and I, I mean that that I think I still have that VHS tape. Um, it was it was uh, JPB Peter in the semi. Rowland beat uh, surprisingly beat Jancher in the semi. Two of them in the final. It was a it was a great final. Uh, really uh, incredible squash. I mean, Craig. Uh, I mean, you know, Craig. He was a workhorse, right? He was a pretty mm-hmm. big, strong guy, and and JP was just working the ball uh, uh, around the court. It was fun to watch. So, uh, you know, just in terms of the documentary, uh, I, th- I think that that was a seminal uh, moment uh, for for JP, wasn't it? Hundred percent, and all the more impressive, all done in Simon Park squash shoes, right? <laughs> That's right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, it's nice. It, you know, in in um, we wanted to make a well, we made a reasonably big thing of of it in that moment. Ended part one because it's kind of nice that he's come full circle and now back at the Heights Casino because that's where the tournament champions was that year. It got moved, so it was at the tennis on the tennis court in the Heights Casino, and now he's back full circle and you know competing his or completing his coaching career um back there so it was a it was a nice loop but yeah I mean that whole period was just fascinating to listen to again just coming through and you know in theory it sounded like he was going to beat Jansha in Pakistan and then got got reft out of it but then you know clearly I arrived I didn't know that story um oh it's a good one huh? I guess we won't want to spoil it but uh uh, yeah, it's an incredible story. Uh, amazing, yeah. amazing. But uh, I mean, he had just to. I mean, he had some great matches uh, with J- with Jancher before sort of Jancher had to retire. And but there there was the one in uh, India, which is on YouTube. The main, right. uh, and that that I mean that match JP had it. He it looked like he was going to win it, and then the way Jancher just sort of finds a way, all the, or found a way. At that point in his career, it, it, I mean, it speaks to the genius of Jancher as well. And Jay, I think Jonathan be the first one to tell you how great Jancher was. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. Yeah. No, he was, I mean, yeah. the Well, one of the top two greatest ever, I think. I yeah. mean, it's, it's, you know, he, he found a way to win and he got, and he got obviously more efficient with his attacking later on and didn't rely on that movement and, had been around for a long time so I, it, you almost felt like it was when he turned his mind to it if he really wanted to suddenly win again <laughs> he could do but I guess he was a bit more up and down at those later stages of his career right but then yeah. suddenly you'd see almost see a switch go in his head and be like oh no I'm gonna actually put some effort in here and compete and cause some problems and then inevitably string a string a load of points together and uh would switch back on um yeah, no, he was he was amazing. Um, but just listening to that, you know, listening to how Jonathan kind of transcended that that kind of Khan era, and then uh, then you know that was a really really interesting period because uh, uh, when Jonathan came in, he was you know Peter was at at the top. You had guys like I can remember a match that he played. I think it was the year before he won the Hong Kong Open, and I think he was expecting maybe to win. Uh, an, uh, that that event, but he he played. Um, I think it was Rodney Isles in the uh, quarterfinal or the semifinal uh, of that, 
And uh, at the end of the match, when Rodney was, you know, he hit one of his patented, uh, you know, volley drops or whatever, uh, Jonathan just steamed off the court, didn't even shake his hands, <laughs> burst through the door and threw his racket. And it, it was just, uh, it was great. It, it was amazing to see it. And uh, you knew how disappointing, disappointed he was at the time. He was a fierce, fierce competitor. Well, that was what came out, you know. I, I did I probed him on that, you know. What did did he like winning or did he hate losing? I always find that a fascinating question, um, you know. And I know that I hated losing, <laughs> like that was the thing that drove me on. I hated it. I'd end up in tears, like even to, through to being a teenager, I lost a squash match. It was the worst thing in the world, and got that same sense from JP that you know losing just hated it. Just, just thought he'd win everything, but absolutely detested losing. So, um, yeah, no, I think that, I think that definitely, uh, definitely came through. But it was, you know, I wonder the really. I mean, part two is, I mean, like it's a step up again in my, in my opinion. Again, that's, that's my next of- question. I mean, part one. I mean, uh, it begs the question. Uh, I'm just, I'm just guessing because I haven't seen part two yet. But uh, uh, we are we talking nickel power rivalry? Pretty much, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. we were in New York, and again, wasn't really planned. Um, wanted to go and see Pete, um, and then we were going. We filmed a couple of playlists with Peter, um, but then said, "Oh, it would just be great if we could do, you know, twenty minutes just talking about you and you and JP, and we'll just just see how it goes." Because JP had talked so kind of, I guess, fondly in reality of that um that rivalry with peter mm. so went back and asked peter many of the same questions kind of in reverse and we ended up chatting for half an hour so when what we ended up getting was this back and forth between peter and jonathan that was all about the rivalry and how they both tried to counter each other and what they felt it was like playing each other and the respect they had for each other and you know as as we kind of worth recording it i was just like this is unbelievable you know it's like literally sitting down with federer and nadal and just getting them to talk about playing each other i mean it's it is the same thing right yeah but the insight just mind-blowing it gives me like that makes the hair stand up on the back of my neck just thinking about it like I'm, it's so good and so it's so interesting um so yeah part two really is 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 centered about that rivalry and then and then talking about Jonathan's retirement so that that's basically part two being at the top of the game mm. the importance of the rivalry with Peter how he evolved how they both approached it and then it goes on to just JP retiring at one and yeah. kind of talking about you know what that meant to him and why he retired and what he felt so so it's cool I think it, it you know part one's interesting particularly with all the archive footage and but part two yeah, just getting those two speaking about it is, yeah, for me, so it's much, insane. I mean, there are so many directions you could go with with that rivalry. Really, I mean, the early the early days, uh, I think there was a definitely there. I, I, maybe I'm wrong, not definitely, but there was a bit of a dislike uh, at, in the early stages. I, I remember before JP won the, his first Hong Kong Open, he played Peter in the final. And uh, they interviewed him before the match. I saw it was on Star Sports or one of these channels. And uh, they asked him, so what's going to happen in the final? <laughs> he said, it's going to be all shots. <laughs> <That's what he's... laughs> it was like, you know, it's not, you know, I, ex- I expect it to be a close match. No, uh, it's going to be all shots. Uh, that's what he said. <laughs> yeah, I, I think it was a rivalry or a relationship that just evolved 
yeah over time and the warmth you know that they speak of each right. other with now is you know it's genuine and i mean the the, the, the standout comment that really stuck with me i mean i'm ruining it for you now jerry um because you haven't seen part two yet but you know jp just says my whole career was defined by that when i look back is all i think about is my matches with peter you know nobody else comes into it it was all his whole career was defined by those matches with peter fundamentally and they're the only ones he remembers that's as far as you know what he says it's like they're the only matches i remember with peter yeah um and you know, I mean, but it, it just goes to show, like TOC this year, they played doubles together, right? And uh, it was, it, yeah. So they did the exhibition doubles, and um, Peter and John, Jonathan played together against Nick and Greg, and oh, yeah. uh, and <laughs> the old guys beat the younger, beat the younger guys. <laughs> um, so you know, there's a great friendship there. I mean, they don't speak to each other lots. They live in the same city, and but you know, when they do see each other, they talk about the warmth that's there and the respect that's there. Um, clearly, I mean, they both had a huge impact on each other's lives, right? For the best part of eight, nine years. Yeah, well, I mean, it's such a big part of squash uh, history as well, the two of them. So, uh, what's your um, interesting? I had this conversation with a couple of people. What's your take on the greatest squash rivalry? Who, if somebody says what's the rivalry that stands out the most, who would it be in your opinion or kind of top three if you weren't going to stick it in a particular order? Well, um, I, I, I would have to say JK and, and Jancher, number yeah. one. Yeah. Uh, Peter, Jonathan, number two. Yeah. Uh, and um, maybe Jahangir and Jeff Hunt. Yeah, and then I mean Jonah and Jeff as well has got to be yeah, in there. Jonah and Jeff, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's up there though, isn't it? You know, for me, Peter and JP is well, it's the one. Where do you where do you put it? I think for me, it's one, but only because it was when I was the ultimate kind of squash fanboy. You know, yeah, I was for, for, for me personally, JP and 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 uh, Peter head of way above everyone else. Yeah, but I, yeah, I it was just that just time. Objective yeah. about it, uh, yeah, yeah. No, it's it, it, you know we were there. Well, I was there as a as a teenager. I couldn't wait. I couldn't wait for them to play every yeah. tournament. You know, yeah. but it was interesting them talking as well about mm. see the number of times they played. There were a lot of kind of three nils where one player would play well and the other wouldn't, and somebody could just blow the other person away. But there were only a handful of like. You know the, the Broadgate Arena um, being being one of them. You know that fifteen fourteen in the fifth, where they both kind of came off court and went. You know what well, we both played brilliantly there, and they both openly admit that there weren't actually that many occasions where they both were absolutely on their game and kind of led to classics. But you know, the, I mean, there's some crazy stats. Pete told me this stat that if you take all the matches and then all the games and all the points like averaged across the the whole thing like it's literally like one point separation between them across all the matches and all the games like yeah. I, I i need to dig out the stat and actually use it in the in the promo but um yeah, yeah peter yeah, talked yeah. about it it's it's crazy like literally one point in their professional careers there's one point that separates them across all their matches um which is pretty amazing yeah yeah, I mean, I'm not. It might even be the 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 biggest rivalry because I mean, you don't 
you didn't really get a sense of I sort of got the sense that there was a bit of dislike between Jancher and Jahangir, uh, but you didn't really see it. It, it wasn't out there. The squash wasn't as visible as it as it was with JP and Peter. But uh, there was definitely, I mean, that 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 rivalry was palpable, you know. Yeah, no, for sure, it uh, it was, and I think it evolved. You know, there's you saw the trailer for part two. Um, well, you know, Pete's it is with he's got a Scottish accent, then he's got an American yeah, yeah. accent now, but he's got his <laughs> Scottish accent then. So and I know what he's like, I know what to expect. And um yeah, yeah, you could tell there was he, he threw some plaudits in there too. He said he's okay. a talent, yeah. Yeah, yeah, of course. Well he was, right? He was. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, I also just listening to to JP talk about that, how he was promoting new squash and felt Peter was old, you know promoting old school, new school versus old school. And then just the way the whole thing evolved, you know, and how Peter adapted his movement and then Peter adapted his attacking game. And, you know, that, that's the stuff that really gets me. It just, it's just so interesting to listen to and how they both went away and worked with their coaches and tried to figure things out. And yeah, it's just, just, just awesome. It's an awesome rivalry and awesome to kind of, get both of their takes on it and document it on films. So. Yeah. And there's so much more too. I mean, obviously you had the, uh, the David Palmer and the, the, the Akmit Barada stuff. I mean, that, that was insane. Uh, mm. Some of the stuff that was going on there, but uh, just in terms of, you know, it's, uh, just to move on a little bit, this might be in part three, but I'm lo- looking forward to part two, but uh, as most of us know, uh, JP has been working with uh, Diego Elias uh, since he was a junior, uh, I think. And uh, the similarities in terms of the squash, I mean, the movement, the racket skills, uh, you can see so much of JP there, just uh, the way Diego, Diego's uh, such a talent, right? With the racket and with, with the way he moves around the court. But um, what is just wondering if you learned anything uh, about the relationship uh, between the two of them and um, sort of what does JP think uh Diego needs to do to I mean he's got the chance to get the number one this week I think uh to get there to the top yeah, it's an interesting one I mean he so obviously I think they met in the world where did they meet there was a, a junior tournament go you know go it's a long it's a long-standing relationship um back from obviously Diego's junior days and then when Diego started on tour uh JP basically said to Greg I want you to look after Diego in the same way that JP looked after Greg on tour so they were basically best buddies or you know he was an older guy but looking after looking after a younger guy and JP kind of had that had that same conversation with with Greg to say can you can you now look after Diego like like uh, I did for you um so there's you know there's a good degree of coaching but JP was also very careful to not take all the credit for Diego's success. You know, right. he really says Diego's dad's his coach. Um, and Diego's, you know, it it, it it was interesting listening to it. He, you know, clearly J, J, JP's done lots of advisory work and, you know, plenty of coaching with him. But he was really, you know, keen on lauding Diego's dad with a lot of that that success. Um, but you know, as you say, clearly there's element like you know front backhand that generating yeah. crazy power. You know that's got JP written all over it, and JP's taken that from 
Brett Martin, you know. Um, so yeah, I well, all of the that. all of the holds that he has too, like yeah, the front exactly. right, front left flicks, brought the and just sort of the movement into the front corners. There's, there's so much he's he's yeah. given him, um, but I th- you know I think he's as I say he's very keen keen to just say you know the core of that a lot of that hard work came from from his dad, but then he's been able to pass on all this because he, he he describes you know Diego as just being saying that he's so talented and he's able to absorb information like nobody else. Um, you know the the stuff that JP was able to use to get to the top five in the world, he couldn't go and pass that information on to you or I or you know 99.99% of the global squash playing population because we wouldn't be able to do it but Diego's like a sponge and he's able to just put stuff into his game so quickly so he says you know he just loved working with Diego and being able to just go right well now put this into your game and then Diego suddenly suddenly can do it so no he's um he's put a huge focus on on movement and you know Diego's very natural and fluid but I think they've, they've done a lot of work on on his movement becoming more powerful done quicker a, off done a lot team. of work on his fitness lately too well he had to right um <laughs> yeah he had, he had to I mean for me yeah, Diego sort of is coming from the same playbook as JP so he realized that you know I've got to if I get fit I can I can do it he's the best player in the world for me you yeah. know Diego if the, the most natural gifted Squash player. I mean, Asal's pretty gifted, right? But, you know, Diego's just so fluid and, yeah, I guess, yeah, natural. Um, so if he's fit and can go and play at pace and last all the way through a tournament, he's going to be, you know, so difficult to to deal with. I mean, it, it made me laugh when we made that Paul, Paul Cole documentary five years ago. Um, with Diego was there that weekend uh, or that week with with Paul, and we we, we filmed them doing training sessions together with Naylor as well, and you know filming Paul in his kitchen cooking food, and Paul's like the consummate professional, killing himself in the gym, eating vegan, eating you know you've got your quinoa and your spinach and all this stuff, and here goes there with his Pringles and kind of finding excuses not to. Um, you know, to dip out the circuit or to dip out the session, you know, and it was just so funny watching them. It was both pretty close in the world. I guess Paul maybe marginally had the edge at the time, but you could just see the work ethic was very different at that point. And obviously since then, now Diego's gone on to, you know, be challenging for number one and winning events. It's, you know, that hard work is kind of happening, right? And, you know, through lockdown, they were obviously together, weren't they, JP and and Diego spent lockdown together, living together. Um, and I think, yeah, he's just got his got his head on now, hasn't he? And realizes he can be a world champion, can be a world number one. And you know, I really hope he 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 does have that success because he's he's clearly doing the work. Um, no, it's great to it, watch. I mean, when there, there's back before Diego, I think you know, before I'd play a league match, I, I'd always go to the. Um, Amr Shabana and I, I watch watch him play and just how smooth and how effortless it looked. He made it look, and uh, I think now uh, it would be Diego would be the guy I'd go to to just sort of get myself in the right headspace. You know, hundred percent. Yeah, if you want to watch smooth squash and natural squash, it's you know I always come back to whose whose swing would you teach? You know, when if you as a, as a coach, and you know you. you it used to be Shabs, 
you know, if you were going to hit treats, tr- coach somebody to hit a squash ball, who would it be? Yeah, Shabana. Now I think Diego kind of takes that, uh, takes that spot now. It's yeah. you know so natural and yeah, just 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 great to watch. So it's um, yeah, it'll be interesting. He's got quirky swing swings like uh, Yusuf Ibrahim. He's got a great. <laughs> he's got a great. Uh, I mean, I've I've tried hitting the that, that little backhand where you <laughs> it, it it works. <laughs> It's steep, right? It's steep yeah. and severe. So it's great if your timing's on and you're in the right position and the ball's sitting up. You know, it's so steep. Um, lots of cut and you're gonna, you know, hit lots of winners, but you know, somebody's got you working and at extension and you know, does it break down? That's the uh that's yeah. the question. But no, I mean he's look, there's some funny swings, right? You look at Mazen uh or Mazen. <laughs> um I mean, you're not going to teach that, right? But that's the beauty of the game, right? You, yeah. you know, there's no one way to to play the game, and you know, ultimately, there's no one way to to teach the game. I think there's more successful ways of teaching the game, probably, but um, there's no one way to do it. And uh, well, that's the beauty of squash skills, isn't it? I mean, you guys have it all out there. So many people uh, contributing, uh, so many different approaches, and uh, really good stuff. Well, that's what we tried to do. We tried to be a melting pot, right? And uh, you know, we it's tough. You don't want to con- confuse people um, by putting too many ideas into the pot. You know, everything we put on there, we you know, we you, we want to believe in. Um, I do get some funny messages from you know certain coaches when a new idea comes up, and it's uh, not necessarily what they do. Um, you know, people <laughs> be quite opinionated. I'm sure you can guess who I'm talking about um but yeah no we try to be a melting pot uh because there is there is no one way to play the game there's no one way to teach the game i saw uh, speaking of that this is about this is about golf but i saw the other day uh and i'm trying to work on my putting a bit and i saw something the other day uh, a guy it was in a magazine and, and it was the weird the Worst advice, but it might work for some people, right? Uh, oh, okay. He was saying, uh, you know, if you suffer from nerves before making uh, before a putt in a big tournament, this this trick will help you. Go out to the practice green, bring your jump rope, jump for for a minute, and then go putt. Right. Okay. Uh, I, I, I just, tried it. Sorry. <laughs> you tried it. That. No. <laughs> <laughs> uh, my I do get nervous that way, but. Uh, but yeah, some uh, I don't I don't think that's the no the different type of uh, you know your heart's your heart's racing not because you're yeah I mean that one seems counterintuitive really if you think about what, yeah. you know marksmen and people who are shooting trying to lower their heart rate and be as still as possible you'd imagine mm. putting on a golf green would uh, would be similar but hey who knows. Courses for courses, right? What works for some yeah, people? Might yeah, I think some people might. I mean, that that that's the beauty of, of what you have on the squash skills. There, you you've got so many great coaches uh, contributing, and everyone. I mean, you can identify your flavor and what works for you, and uh, you know, keep. Up yeah, that's what we're trying to do. Yeah, no, we just want to bring a breadth breadth to it, but fun, you know, fundamentally, we've got to believe in it all as well. Um, but yeah, no, yeah, I mean, th- there's lots of different ways to to teach the game and you know i guess it, it it becomes a little bit more challenging for maybe an absolute beginner with the breadth of content we have to kind of know where to start to some extent i think we could probably do a better job of trying to guide people through that kind of early content 
Um, but yeah, for for people who've got a little bit of an understanding, you know, I think it's great. You can hear these different philosophies, these different ideas, go and test things out. You know, I mean, there was some comments actually on around DP. I don't know if you you saw the stuff on squash stories a little while ago, somebody had clipped up one of the, the bits of footage from eight, nine years ago yeah. um, about DP talking about how to play a backhand drop shot and some of the issues that the Australian players might have in lacking touch. And it was like a red rag to a bull in, uh, in squash stories. It was quite entertaining watching yeah. it kind of kick off, but you know, you've got that Australian concept of cocked wrist and space which i firmly believe in right 100 but at the time when we filmed that with dp eight or nine years ago laura was one in the world nick matthew was one in the world and nick was you know taking the ball in short you know very effectively and laura laura had improved a short game dramatically hitting the ball like this so i remember going and playing league match and just starting to try and hit around the outside of the ball like dp had been advocating for some of these drop shots and the ball was just be like carving in like it was just like leaving the ball really short just rolling, like wow well, that's kind of that's working it was a different angle to what i've been able to hit mm. before um and you know that was it I, I messed around with it for a little bit didn't adopt it into my game didn't certainly didn't adopt it into my coaching but was like okay that allows me to take the ball in in a different way but seeing how disparaging everybody was in squash stories kind of a month ago about this technique and how it was completely wrong just made me maybe laugh a little bit because, you know, DP had managed to get Laura and Nick to one in the world. They worked incredibly hard, clearly done huge amounts of solo and made all the adaptions to be able to do it. And would I advocate teaching, you know, an amateur player to hit the ball like that? Probably not. But the fact I went on and was able to carve it in, it's like, okay, well, that's a good example of going, well, let's just try something. Let's listen to that information, see if it works for me. Does it work? Yes or no. If it doesn't, okay, cool. I'm going to park that and I'm going to going to move on. Um, so that's where I see, you know, one of the real strengths of what we do offer is these different ideas that, you know, inevitably have worked for different people. I don't think any of the content that we put on there is, you know, untested or untried or unproven in one way or another. Um, but equally, the, collect the collection of people that you have contributing, uh, you know, it speaks for itself, right? So, every, I mean, you in every sport where you have a lot of, you know, coaches putting out content and maybe you have one repository for it, uh, I think you're going to get people to who identify with a certain coach or a certain way. And that's really uh, the beauty in my mind of uh, squash skills. No, I agree. I agree. I mean, yeah, we've, well, it's 11 years now in uh, July, Jerry. So yeah, we've Time had, uh, yeah, plenty, plenty of coaches on there now and um, yeah, plenty of ideas. So I think, you know, I think there's still more ideas and more, more new ground to cover. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, it's interesting to see how it evolves and you know, it's nice just getting some of the new school guys like the Luke Butterworths and, you know, some of those really successful younger US coaches. Mm coming through and you know clearly doing lots of great things with the juniors and but then equally you know there's just just spending on time with jp we did three playlists as well so we did the three-part interview and then we've got three playlists coming out later in the summer so one on movement yeah. one on deception and then what we called swings and spins 
Um, so let's just talk about how he used to hit, or how he changed his swing to hit certain shots, the type of spin he'd try and put on the ball to to do different things in different situations. And, you know, I was just just blown away listening to what he was talking about, how he'd really try and put out, you know, side spin on the ball mm. um, just so it would bite and grip behind the back of the service box and then just spin into the side wall. So JP was always saying it's much easier to hit a ball if it's glued to the side wall and stays to the side wall the whole way down the wall. You know what you're dealing with. But if you can get it, so you're putting this side spin on the ball, so it's kind of two or three inches away from the side wall, but then it's spinning into the side wall behind the service box. That's what he was trying to achieve. Mm. And, you know, it's I mean, yeah, it's yeah. incredibly hard to do, but that was the difference between him being kind of four or five in the world and one in the world. And, you know, just listening to that was like, you know, I've, I've heard a lot of people talk a lot about squash and squash coaching over the years, right? But that was just you know exemplified what we're trying to achieve here at squash skills is that there's some new ideas that's some new insight that's not out in the world you know and i'm if i'm still learning then everybody else can still be learning right um, remember uh that that craig rowland video that i mentioned uh, the uh, toc final with jp and i remember watching it over and over again and one thing that really helped my my game at the time it was how he would uh he especially on the backhand like from around mid-court area or just behind the service box, he'd, he'd play a cut backhand, uh, you know, maybe about a foot or less above the tin and would just stay really low. Yeah. Yeah, and and that that shot, like at that time, not many people were playing. Well, he's got that, but he's, he, I mean, he, literally the whole good chunk of the playlist is on that and the stuff he did on the backhand, but he used to use that in conjunction with the chip ball. So yeah. he'd shape up to come down. So then he could come down and play the kill and it would cause loads of problems. It's a horrible length to deal with that kind of ball that second bounce is bouncing into the short line. If it's tight, because you're kind of going forward, you can't really take a big swing. You're having to lunge at it and you, you're having to kind of, you know, you can't just play a quick counter drop because you're quite a long way away from the, yeah. the front wall. It's very difficult to leave it short and soft. So difficult ball to deal with. But then JP would talk about how he threatened for that and then just come underneath it and pop it deep. So he'd then he'd hit kind of the ball above the cut line and and chip it. So those two in conjunction you'd have his opponents rocking forward, covering that one and then going deep and then just didn't know where it was coming. Yeah. So that's all covered in the in the playlist coming later in the year. Um, and then just talked about having a flatter swing as well from the deep backhand so he could really rip through it and just get that dying length that he you know was unbelievably get the ball dipping onto the back wall so yeah loads of fascinating about that too like how you know a lot of people never really talk or you know they do now obviously but you know he he gives power credit for his for his length game i mean all those top guys like shibana jp their game was built on length and you know hilariously the stuff that jp actually talked about was like you know there was a real misconception. I, I wanted to be able to play every shot. You know, he wanted to be able to have the ability to play every single shot and show that he could play every shot. But actually, it was a simple game, the quality of a simple game and the pace that he played at and his speed onto the ball. And then being able to show those options that meant he could actually just play quite simple squash. You know, if you try and find him hitting outrageous winners, you know, yeah, he can carve the ball in straight, but... You know, I think he in the in the film he said he doesn't think he ever hit a cross court nick in his whole life. Now I'm not sure that's that's totally true, 
like you know you, you could browse you could go through a lot of batches and it would take a long time for you to see jp you know trying to slot across court nick it wasn't yeah. you know wasn't his game it was fundamentals it was basics it was incredible length um and then it was that speed on spot i think you know the thing that people don't necessarily realize was that jp was probably one of the quickest people onto a squash ball ever and that was that was the thing that he built his game around was explosive movement off the tee getting onto the ball quickly and then having options and uh, you know there's a whole playlist on it but remember james wilstrop uh saying years and years ago that he just couldn't believe how quick jp was and he'd never played anybody like it never experienced speed like it onto a ball and the, you know, it was a classic case of using speed to attack not using speed to defend you know classically if you think of quick squash players Miguel Rodriguez and you know Surav and those people who can do amazing retrievals but you know you probably wouldn't necessarily put JP in that same think of him in the same way but I think the reality in terms of speed onto a ball he was probably you know as quick as anybody um so yeah there's a that was the number one playlist he wanted to do actually it was like right what topics are we going to do you know I clearly wanted to do deception it was like no we've got to do movement got to do movement so such a cool part of his game. Yeah, he but then coupled with that great that, that great video series on uh, on movement uh, way back uh, back in the day. They had the VH or the CDs or the VHS uh, tapes on movement. But uh, Jethro, we we could spend hours here just talking about this. Uh, it's fascinating stuff. Uh, but before you go, um, you mentioned squash stories, and I hope I you know. You don't mind me asking you this. Uh, the big, big thing on squash stories over the last couple of days, as you know, is the uh, the Mustafa Saul uh, ban, the six-week. Uh, he's been banned from uh, from the tour, uh, leading, I guess, he he can't play Optasia and he can't play the British Open. Um, so he's a guy who's taken – he's charismatic. He's take, He took the squash uh, pro tour by, by storm. Um, just wondering uh, what your thoughts are on on his ban uh, uh i knew you were going to ask me this jerry mm. i knew i was waiting for this question i thought it was all about jp um yeah look i um i think the squash world is really divided at the moment it's like politics um and it's not particularly enjoyable to look into like looking in squash stories at the moment it's not a happy place and it's no doesn't paint a good picture of the game uh unfortunately uh i think people have taken sides and i think there's a lot of kind of disinformation going around um i think so my take i look i really like i like mustafa we've done squash skills training clubs with him you know i met him in person lovely you know lovely 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 lad uh very softly spoken great to you know great to deal with but clearly there's a problem when he's on the squash court, right? People are getting injured. <laughs> Matches get messy. People end up on the floor. And Mustafa's the common denominator there. You know, there's this view that people are now just looking for, for him and diving and faking stuff. And I'm just not sure I sub subscribe to that. I'm sure there's a couple of situations where, you know, people have played it to their advantage, but it's not... That's not what's going on here consistently across the board, right? Yeah. Um, you know, the, the the game with Joel, I think Maz probably made a couple of bad decisions um, that went against Mustafa at crucial times. Don't necessarily think he's 
out to get Mustafa. And certainly this um, this whole notion that the PSA are out to destroy Mustafa's career because he's too good and they want him out of the game is just complete nonsense. You know, I know what's going on behind the scenes. I know what's been going on, the amount of work that Lee Drew was doing on a weekly basis with Mustafa to to try and sort out the problems with his movement. Everybody wants Mustafa in the game. They they know he's box office, but nobody wants to be seeing what happened with Joel the other day and matches to be falling apart and it to be stop start. And that's not good for the game. Um, you know, you come back to the bands. He's banned for a reason, right? The Bay, the, the, what happened, people getting injured, you know, it's disciplinary matter. And I think people are also missing the fact that it's gone to an independent tribunal as well, right? It was appealed, went to an independent tribunal and the independent tribunal has held this up. Um, so this whole myth that people are out to get Mustafa is is not the case. I think there's some referees who've been harsh on him for sure, but that's not institutional within the PSA. Um, so does he deserve a ban for that? You know, the, those incidents? Yes. In in reality, does he need to change his movement? Yes. Does he need to change his attitude? Yes. Is he a nice kid? Yes. So it's, you know, for me, that's, you know, Nick Matthew put a pretty balanced article out yesterday. Yeah. Um, you know, and unfortunately, Mustafa is the common common denominator in these situations. Just look at the other semi-final the yeah. other day between Ali and Ali and Paul. You know, everyone's just you know, like talking about dreamy squash and free-flowing squash. And so, you know, Mustafa is a mercurial talent. He's brilliant and just needs to let squash do the talking and needs to make some changes. But you know, this notion that the PSA are fundamentally out to get him and ruin his career and get him out of the game is just so misguided and nonsensical. Um, so, yeah, it, it frustrates me. It, like, it, yeah, it, I don't, it's not good for the game. Um, and this divisiveness that now seems to exist kind of amongst the fans, which I never thought we'd see uh, yeah. in squash, yeah. is unfortunate. Yeah. Yeah, it's not good. Um, and it's, yeah, something something needs to change. You know, there's there needs to be a bit more objectivity. Um, people just seem to be kind of digging in on their positions now, rather than taking a step back and looking objectively at what's actually going on. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I'm hopeful Mustafa can make some changes. Um, well, he did uh, in that event, anyways. The movement up until the, I mean, up until his match with uh, with Joel was was pretty good although he wasn't threatened and uh, I don't fault Joel for the way he, he sort of took the bull by the horns. That's how he approached it. Look, I'm not going to roll over this, this guy. I'm just going to go out there and, you know, be a bit, bit of a bully myself. And it, it yeah. Yeah. Look, I don't think, you know, there were like bits in there where Joel acknowledged the fact that he'd done a cheeky movement you know, and to to compete with with what's going on. And it's so subtle. That's the thing that it's so he's so streetwise. Uh, Mustafa is, you know, it's not I'm not saying it's cheating, but he's very streetwise in some of those movements and the blocks are so subtle. And there's also this this new thing that's appeared in the game where there's a like a deeper T position now coming out of the deep backhand people are going across and with the the way the decisions have been going with 
like less lets and more strokes hanging back and then just taking players into that backhand back corner and then getting a stroke and I think that's that's a more recent phenomenon that I think you know Mustafa's kind of definitely been a part of uh, or, or, or creating um, and it's quite an unnatural kind of movement to the ball. People used to just go up and round, right? Up and round, up and round. And now it's kind of half up and then in. Yeah. And um, it's just got messy. It's just got messy. But, you know, uh, free-flowing squash can happen, right? As we've seen with Paul and Ali. Oh, and yeah. Yeah. It's, the uh, final, the final yeah. uh, between uh, Joel and, and Paul there, the Canary, that was free, free throw. I don't know. There weren't that many lets there, that's for sure. No, and unfortunately, you know, unfortunately, Mustafa is the common denominator yeah. in this. And I'm, you know, I'm certainly not an Asal hater at all. I'm just no, trying to be yeah. objective and, as I say, I really, really like him and want him to be successful. Um, but something's got to gotta change. And I think he, he probably, I mean, judging from what we saw, what we've seen in some of his earlier matches, and I think this season anyways, there haven't been as many situations. I think he probably realizes it and the ban, I hope, will result in more of, you know, improvements on, on his side and we'll see uh, see something special at the World <laughs> world Championships. Yeah. Sorry absolutely. to put you on the spot there, uh, Jethro. No, no, no. I, well, I, I thought... You knew it was uh, coming, right? I did. I, I, I'd thought about it and had uh, kind of thought about what I was going to say because I was expecting it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's a tricky one. Look, we, we want the best players in the game to be competing, right? But but that, yeah, the, the big thing for me, that ban is not imposed by PSA behind closed doors in an effort to, you know, stop Mustafa being successful. It's... People, yeah. you know, it, it's done with with good reason, and then it's gone to an independent tribunal, and they've judged the same way. So, yeah, there's there's a lot of myths going around, particularly in squash stories at the moment, and um, yeah, they need debunking, I think, in reality, because you know, yeah, so the, the work that Lee well, Drew. I mean, that's what it is. I mean, you you go on, you know, any sport where there's any bit of controversy you go onto twitter and you look at all the the mentions or, or the the comments i mean some of them are just absolutely absurd yeah and you just take it with a grain of salt or laugh and and move on right uh and that that's yeah, it's, it's interesting though, shows, so. yeah it's it's just like it's a bit more of a football mentality a bit more tribal at the moment you don't not used to seeing it in kind of in an individual sport to quite the same extent, you know, I get it if it was Liverpool playing Man United um, and you kind of pick your side and you have your blinkers on, but it's, um, yeah, it's definitely, uh, definitely a bit different in a kind of individual sport, the way that you've got pro Asal or anti Asal, it seems, and there's not a lot of kind of, not a lot of middle ground or, or less vocal middle ground, maybe that the middle ground is out there, you know, and, but um, it's, it's certainly less vocal. Well, I think uh, you know, as you mentioned, he he's a he's a nice guy. I've had him on the on the podcast. He's you know softly spoken, funny, charismatic, uh, you know, likable. Uh, but when he's on the squash court in a situation like it was against Joel, it's not fun to watch. But uh, hopefully, uh, after the ban is over, we get to see uh, a better version of that. But uh, Jethro uh, really really uh, enjoyed talking about the JP doc. Uh, 
uh, part one was absolutely amazing. Part two and part three, what are the dates uh, for the release of those? Uh, so part two comes out a week on Monday, which oh. is the 5th of April. Is that right? 5th of April. Uh, yeah. yeah. And then the 19th for part three. So yeah, part two, uh, rivalry with Peter Nickel and going out at the top. And then part three is uh, JP's take on coaching and life in coaching and return to return to New York. So, yes. We might see uh, a, a sort of a, a similar thing happen uh, this week if uh, Mohammed uh, wins. El Shabagi, he'll, he'll get back to number one. Mm-hmm. Will he go out on top if he does? I mean, he's he's been at it for a while. That would be interesting. But it be it would be absolutely amazing if he were to get back to number one uh, uh, this week. No, it's amazing. Clearly, some great stuff happened. You know, great, got his head in a good place over there in Prague, hasn't he? Um, I don't know. I I don't think so. I I'd be surprised given he's just affiliated with England, and you know, yeah. there's yeah. I, I'd be surprised if that were, you know England would have got a raw deal there. Um, so now I think I think Mo's got a bit of time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think Mo's got a bit of time left yet, and yeah, yeah. more titles to They're go. Um, and kind it. of a, a romantic ending to the the JP doc. Mm. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, no, I think what what it was interesting. He's got Mike Corrin is next in his sights, isn't he? On the uh, the all time list of uh, PSA tournament wins. Oh, so I think it's Mike Corrin. That's a blast. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, no, he's um because it's like Jahangir, then Jansha, then Mike Corrin, then <laughs> Mo, and then like Pete Nick or something in the all-time PSA winners oh, list. Wow. But but Mike, you know, I mean, I think he's still playing. He's got. I'm not sure exactly how old he is now, but the number of five Ks that he's won in Australia is like insane. <laughs> Um, so I'm not sure if Mo's got him in his sights as uh, you know on the, on that all time list, but he's got yeah got a couple more wins, a couple more events to go after. Um, so no, I think Mo's I think Mo's around for a little while. I think it's an interesting you know that race for one. Yeah, suddenly everyone's bunched up again. You know, you go all the way it's down. Been like this for a while. That that's one thing about the the current uh, you know the current tour right now on the men's side and, and the women's even, but. Uh, three, four, five, six guys competing for number one, whereas previously you had Nickel, then you had Power, then you had Matthew, you know, guys who kind of dominated uh, for periods of time. A hundred percent. No, I was just going to bring up the um, the the squash levels uh, power ratings at the moment. It's really it's really interesting, actually, who's, who's where. Because I think Ali's at six, which yeah. is, you know, nuts, really. Um, because he clearly is, you know, able to beat anybody. So yeah, our top the power the PSA power ratings according to levels have got Mustafa at one uh on eighty two thousand seven hundred. Then you've got Diego at eighty two thousand one hundred mm-hmm. at two, then you've got Mo at three, Paul's worked his way back up to four, yeah. Ali at five, and then Joel at six on seventy two thousand. So you've got Joel, Ali, and Paul, right. 73,000. Mohammed at 75. And then Diego and Nassal at 82,000. So, yeah, very, very interesting going into uh, 
yeah, going into a world championship, right? Yeah, yeah, it's uh, going to be exciting, uh, ex- an exciting ending uh, to the season. But uh, Jethro, really appreciate it. Uh, great having you back on, a friend of the podcast. Really appreciate it. Thanks a lot, mate. Cheers. Enjoy, enjoy part two. Well, I'm still buzzing after that. Incredible stuff from Jethro. Tremendous, tremendous part one of the JP documentary and can't wait for part two, uh, the JP Peter Nickel rivalry uh, and part three, something along the lines of uh, JP's mic drop after reaching number one again, I guess, uh, you know, how he managed to get to number one. I think that was a a big, big uh, push on his part him and his team and uh, that'll be uh, in part three amongst other uh, parts of that story as well now uh, again many thanks to Jethro uh, for that and check it out check it all out at uh, Squash Skills you can see the documentary it's available there now uh, just a quick update on the Optasia Squash Championships unbelievable how it has played out uh, since my chat with Danny Lee earlier in the week where we spoke of the implications on world number one and it really looked like we would have a new world number one uh, after this event. Well, it looks like Asal may remain at number one for the next little while at least uh, as both Diego Elias and Mohamed El Sherbagi got chopped early uh, by uh, Kareem Abdul-Gawad and Charlie Lee respectively. Now the final is tonight and Kareem uh, will face Yusuf Solomon in the final. Both guys have played incredible squash all week and in the semis in particular. Both semis were great last night. Yusuf uh, really played phenomenal squash uh, to withstand the onslaught of mind-blowing uh, shot-making and squash uh, from Mezen Hisham. What, he's one-of-a-kind Mezen on the tour. That goes without saying. I mean, the shots that he came up with last night every time he plays, the speed with which he plays, uh, the intensity as well. Uh, he's so fun to watch, so great for the game. And it really did look like uh, after the third that he might have the match in the bag. Uh, then I, I just think it was a combination, obviously, and it seems to haunt him a little bit, a uh, combination of mental and physical letdown uh, but uh, also equally impressive was the play from Yusuf uh, in the fourth and the in the fifth games, especially to come out in that fifth game and step his game up the way he did. He really uh, did his best to contain uh, Mezen and then also had his own shot making uh, going on as well. He really stepped his game up. Uh, an impressive uh, semifinal victory for Yusuf Solomon and Kareem similarly had an incredible event taking out Diego uh, earlier in the event and he's one of these guys uh, I think I've mentioned it uh, a while ago uh, on the podcast way back uh, I've had him on and he's he's always been one of my favorite players he makes it look uh, he makes it look so appealing the game and he makes it look so easy uh, at times uh, Baptiste Masade had some uh, he had some huge chances in each of the three games there. It kind of looked like the games could go either way. But uh, right at the end, Kareem dug in with a little bit extra at the end and maybe a bit of inexperience on Baptiste's part. And uh, Kareem was able to pull off, uh, I would say, a very impressive three-love win. A great week for Masati, though, uh, as well, and a huge win for him uh, in the quarters over informed Joel Macon. And that was really uh, that was great to watch. Two guys who are 
relatively physical, and uh, they both played it in, uh, you know, in tremendous spirit and showed each other a lot of respect at the end of that match. You've probably seen some of the footage and the in the images of uh, the two of them after they finished the match, and that's the way squash should be uh, should be played. And I think it is, uh, for the most part, all all round. Uh, great to see that from those two uh, earlier in the in the event. Really looking forward to that final tonight, though. Um, I got to say, it, I mean, either one of those guys could win it. I mean, uh, Yusuf Solomon's just playing some really good squash. I'm not sure if he picked up a little bit of an injury there at the end. That was a bit of a cramp, but he's also taped up. Uh, I believe it's on upper thigh there on, on his right leg. So that, that may have an impact on it. Uh, obviously, uh, Kareem uh, just coming back from a long layoff. He looks really good moving around the court. Is he fit? Uh, he looks to be. He's quick. He's fit. He's hitting his shots. Uh, it should be a great final. Uh, so looking forward to that uh, tonight. Now, coming up on the podcast this week, you're going to really uh, want to be listening to this one. Looking forward to having on PSA CEO Alex Goff. And we're going to be talking about the 2022-2023 uh, season thus far on the PSA Tour. And obviously there's plenty to uh, discuss there. And Alex has always been great with his time. And really looking forward to uh, talking to him again uh, this week. Everybody, thanks so much for listening. Uh, and if you'd like, if you want to drop a contribution to the podcast in the little hat, uh, go to the In Squash podcast on the SoundCloud page and click on the PayPal link that you see uh, on the uh, In Squash SoundCloud page if you want to make a contribution to the pod. Many thanks, everybody, for listening. All the best with your squash. And we'll be talking to you very soon later this week with Alex Goff. Goodbye now.